We're reading from Isaiah chapter 35 in God's word this morning. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go on about on it. And no lion will be there. Nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So in a year when almost all of our sermons have something to do with hope, and in a series where we're looking at people of hope, there is one character in the Old Testament who we could not possibly leave out, and his name is Isaiah. And it is Isaiah who we come to this morning. It's quite a rare name in use today. I had a look on UK websites for boys' names, and uh, couldn't find Isaiah listed in the UK, but I did find it listed in, in America, where it became quite popular some years ago, but it seems to have tailed off again just in the last little while. The name means Yahweh is salvation, or the salvation of the Lord, and uh, it's a great name, isn't it? Isaiah. I'm curious, so forgive me for asking, have we got any Isaiahs in the congregation this morning? There are one or two people who I don't know here this morning. It's lovely to welcome you. Uh, but I don't know whether there are any Isaiahs among our guests or amongst the regular. Okay, no hands going up yet. Uh, do any of you have anyone in your family, any neighbors, any friends, anyone who you know? If you're teachers, do you have anyone in your school? Is there anyone who you know who has the name Isaiah? Any Isaiahs? We do know someone, we do have an Isaiah family, friend. Ah, she lives in America, that gives it away, doesn't it? Anyone who lives in the UK who is called Isaiah? 
Isn't that interesting? I think we could start a new trend. So those of you who are thinking about naming your next babies, and uh, not looking at anyone in particular, uh, <laughs> what about Isaiah? The Isaiah of the Bible lived in Jerusalem in the 8th century before the time of Christ. The story of his call to a prophet is very well known uh, by those who are familiar with the biblical text. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. So it's not the passage that we read. We're coming to that in just a moment. But uh, the call of Isaiah, the start of Isaiah's story, is in Isaiah chapter 6. I'll just read you the opening of that. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah was in the temple in Jerusalem. He had a great vision of the Lord, which he describes in immense detail. It's absolutely splendid. And the whole of the temple, as it were, was absolutely shaking with uh, the power, the glory, the majesty of this moment. And Isaiah felt utterly useless. He said, woe to me. I am ruined. I am a person of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord. And he felt utterly helpless. And then one of the seraphs flew with a live coal in his hand touched the mouth of Isaiah and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responded, here am I. Send me. Very powerful. That was his amazing call. And this vision and this calling colored the whole of Isaiah's ministry. He saw God as the Holy One of Israel. He never forgot that experience. He felt the cold touch his lips and all the way through his life it's as if he had a profound sense of the meaning of this moment. He experienced God's forgiveness in such a powerful and dramatic way. And from that he was taken into a ministry of prophecy. Interestingly, we don't know very much more about the story of Isaiah as a person. The book in his name gives us many of his prophecies and probably also some prophecies from a later time that were embedded and brought together into what we have now. But in this amazing book of Isaiah, we have some wonderful prophecies. We don't have an awful lot more about Isaiah as a person. But through his words, we can sense more about him, the person who wrote them. We don't have much of his story, but we sense that here was someone of deep spirituality. And in particular, we know that there are two great messages that weighed greatly in his mind. And the first was the seriousness of sin. Because he in that vision in the temple felt so utterly hope helpless and hopeless, he knew that when there were wrong things in the world, they had to be taken seriously. And so the seriousness of sin weighed upon his mind, as did also the immense wonder of salvation. That God in his grace not only touched Isaiah's life and called him, 
to be a prophet, but that God is able to touch the lives of those who have failed. And there is always mercy and there is always grace. These are the gospel messages. They emerge out of Isaiah's own call to be a prophet. He sees much that is wrong with the nation Israel at the time. And so many of his prophecies are a warning of God's judgment. But he also knows of a God who rescues those who turn to him and who comes and who come to him. And this is so wonderfully conveyed also in his prophecy. And one more interesting feature about Isaiah is that he has the capacity in his prophecy to move seamlessly between the particular time in which he was living and the end of time, when in the New Testament language we would say that Jesus returns and the world as we know it now comes to an end and something new is restored. And Isaiah seems to move between the immediate and the ultimate. And sometimes when you're reading his prophecies, you don't quite know whether he's talking about the 8th century and the time when King Uzziah died and he had the vision and the years that followed immediately after that. Sometimes you think he's talking about some years significantly later, around the time of the exile. And sometimes you think he's talking about the end of the world. And it's almost as if he weaves these things together. That can make the book of Isaiah a little bit difficult to unravel. But it also makes it very exciting because we too, live in an immediate time, but we have a clear understanding of what is to come. Now today our reading was from Isaiah 35. And it comes at the end of a series of passages where there's quite a lot of judgment. There's quite a lot of Isaiah warning God's people about when they fail and, and judgment that is to come. And much of Isaiah was an anticipation of what was to happen when Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people were taken into exile. And therefore, because it comes at the end of that, it's all the more remarkable that this passage is so forward-looking and so full of hope because judgment in Isaiah is never the final word. There is always something more to offer to those who turn and believe and trust in God. And so that comes over really clearly in Isaiah 35. It's a remarkable passage. It's presenting a picture of the future and it's also, in the middle of it, there is a very strong challenge for the present time. So that's all we're doing this morning. We're just going to look at the picture of the future that comes in Isaiah 35, and then the challenge to you and me in the present time. The picture of the future is opened for us in the beginning of Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. For those who first heard these words, their minds would have immediately gone back to the Exodus, the story of how God's people were led out of Egypt, through the wilderness wanderings, and into the Promised Land. And of course, they knew the harshness of that experience. They knew that the landscape of the wilderness was barren. It was a difficult area to navigate. They knew the stories of their forefathers struggling through that time. They knew the challenging entry into Canaan and the battles that uh, under Joshua were fought and so on. They knew all about that. And now this passage almost takes them back through that story but relives it in such a different way. 
Indeed, the whole landscape is utterly transformed. The wilderness bursts into life. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Now, Lebanon is in the north. It's a troubled land, as you know, in the present time, but in the time of Isaiah, it was very prosperous and very beautiful. And the beauty and the glory of Lebanon was, as it were, carried into the wilderness and the desert. And Mount Carmel is a wonderful place, which again is very fertile, with vines growing and lots of other flowers and plants. And again, all of that is carried into the wilderness. And so the wilderness blossoms with flowers, with fruit, with life, with color. Places which are dry and dusty now become full of life and color. And then places which cry out for water become springs of water. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I love this image that thirsty ground will become bubbling springs. You know what happens when you take some water and you pour it into dry sand? It just shoots right through. It's gone in an instant. It's as if that dry sand just sucks up every bit of water. Imagine that image and reverse it. And the water comes bubbling up into the sand. Water will gush forth in the wilderness. Can you see how this is a complete reversal of the landscape of the wilderness journeys? Creation is transformed. And so is human life. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. If you remember the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, there is a verse in the middle that picks up this imagery. You blind, behold, your saviour comes and leap you lame for joy. So instead of 40 years of hard wilderness wanderings with sickness and death, this is a picture of a transformed desert with color, beauty, life, and healing. And then to add to that, another key feature of this picture is a highway. A highway that is called the way of holiness. Now, the journey towards Jerusalem is always a treacherous one. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan then, uh, and the thieves and the robbers and so on, uh, the setting of that is the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is an uphill climb and a difficult and dangerous route. And the closer you get to Jerusalem, the steeper the climb. In Isaiah's time, there was a temple on the top of the hill in Jerusalem, but to get to it was a tiresome, steep, uphill climb all the way. All of that is transformed in this picture into a highway of holiness. No robbers or thieves to attack the weary pilgrims. A safe and easy passage, which is a joy to go on. And so the people will enter Zion with joy and singing. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. So here is a picture of a harsh and difficult landscape transformed into a bright and colorful journey with constant water supplies, healing, hope, joy, and a great highway leading to the Lord's city. Now, none of that happened in Isaiah's time. Here was a vision which took people beyond 
anything that they had experienced and anything that the next generation or the one after would experience. There was a return to Jerusalem after the exile, but nothing like this. This is taking us beyond. This is taking us to the last days. We can put it alongside what Jesus says, what the later New Testament passages describe as they begin to give us a picture of Jesus returning, of a new heaven and a new earth, of the whole marvel of what God is to do in the final day. Heaven is a place of life, of color, of fruitfulness, of blessing, of safety, and of joyful pilgrimage to the throne of God. There is something very, very exciting for God's people looking into the future. A transformation from the present time. Something very different. Something that we will never fully understand until we're there. But something that is deeply embedded, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old, as is illustrated here in Isaiah. A great picture of what God has yet to do. But if that's the picture of the future, something that is transformative, something that is totally new, what is the challenge? For us who live in the present time, what difference does it make to see these words, to read these words, to understand them? What is it saying to us now? Well, tucked away right in the middle of this amazing picture in Isaiah 35 are some very strong words in verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. He will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. There is judgment in the future, but there is also blessing. He will come to save you. And your challenge for today, my challenge for today, is to live in the present time with this picture of the future dawning upon you, drawing you towards the Lord with greater faith and expectation. Because the reality is that in the present time we see creation in a mess. I'm sure you're aware of the news that's been coming through this week of the devastating floods in Kerala. Many lives have been lost. Thousands of people have been made homeless. And for some of us that part of the world is particularly pertinent. Many of you will know Charlie Tom. And some of you know that some of his family live in Kerala. Mary and Joy and others. And we trust and pray that they will be safe. But given that the whole of that part of India has been so deeply affected, there will no doubt be huge challenges for everyone who lives in Kerala. And indeed, if we were there now, we would not be coming home for quite a while as the airport is flooded, so you can't get out. Only a week or two ago, most of the news was of a different kind, wasn't it? It was bushfires in Spain and in California, the heat wave that was striking Europe. And somehow the extremes of heat and the extremes of flooding 
are causing elements of chaos. And then in terms of something that was more uh, a man-made construction, we had, of course, the tragic collapse of the highway in northern Italy, which comes really in stark contrast to this vision in Isaiah 35 of a great highway that leads to Jerusalem, where people travel with great joy and expectation. There are those who have traveled that highway in Italy and lost their lives. We're faced with natural disasters, human errors, disease and sickness. And yet we're called to be a people of hope. And our hope is indeed in this life, when we trust completely in Jesus. But our hope is for more than this life. It extends to the future. And this prophecy paints a powerful image of a world that is transformed through the ultimate victory of our Lord and Messiah. And therefore the prophet says, strengthen your hands, stand firm and be strong. Because there is so much more to come, don't be afraid. Look up, look forward. God has so much more to do than what we see in the present time. You see, whenever the Bible refers to the future, there is always a challenge to the present. It never tells us something about the future just so that we know it. It is always to urge, to inspire, to encourage us in the present time, drawing us forward with expectation and hope. It's so easy to get weakened in faith, to get discouraged by difficulty, to be burdened with pressure, or simply to conform what others do without sustaining an effective cutting edge to our Christian faith and life. And this passage tells us we must be different. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, be firm. And speaking personally for a moment, I hold on very firmly to what God has yet to do. The promise of God's future is critical to my faith. There are times when what's happening around me is hugely encouraging and I feel positive and excited. There are times when there are hard things going on which cannot be explained and where I have to dig deep to trust in the faithfulness of God. But for me, part of that is to draw strength now from the promise of what is yet to come. Indeed, I think we could say that both the past and the future are the anchor points for our faith. And it's in the light of both that we live with great joy and hope in the present time too. We look back to when Jesus came and died and rose again for us. Those are moments of history, pivotal moments for the whole world. We look back to those moments. We look forward to the time when Jesus will return and every eye will see him. And we see the fulfillment of some of these images that are throughout the whole pages of the Bible. We look back and we look forward. And those anchor points of the past and the future will strengthen your faith for today. In communion, 
We often think about what God has done in the past. And that's so important. But I think this is also a meal which looks forward. Looks forward to what we sometimes call the marriage supper of the Lamb. The time when we will share in that great feast in heaven. And in a moment we're going to come and share bread and wine today. Let's use this time to look back and be thankful. To look forward and to be expectant. And because of both of those things, because of everything that we know about what God has done and what he will do, let's come with faith and hope to trust him for the present time. And if you're feeling a little bit weak and weary, just lost the cutting edge a bit, hear these words, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear.